University Baptist Church is a faith community striving to think critically, live creatively, and love continually in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We gather on Sunday mornings at 5775 Highland Road between Lee Drive and Kenilworth Parkway. Visit ubc-br.org or at UBCBR on Facebook for more information. Now, over the sermon series, I've decided that I would begin every week by talking about some sort of delicious stuff food. And I think this week I finally found the one that just takes them all. So I found this recipe that combines the things I love about sweetness with the deliciousness of smoked pork. I found a recipe for waffles stuffed with pork. Now, I just want you to think about, just for a second, the savory nature of smoked and salty meat with the sweetness of maple syrup. It's better than chicken and waffles can ever even attempt to be. I thought that that might be a good way to leave this world early, just by enjoying that dish and saying, I'm done, I'm done. I've, I've had all the goodness that can be filled in food. We're in this home stretch of our series, Brimming Buckets, filling our lives with the goodness of Jesus. And we've been talking about what it looks like to fill our lives with Christ. Not just belief in Christ, but the essence of Christ. And Paul personifies this in his book to the Colossians in which he calls them to fill their lives with kindness and goodness and peace and forbearance and joy and love and unity. We've been looking at it as if we, our lives, are like a bucket. Each day we carry this bucket around with us and we have the opportunity to either fill up our lives or to empty them, to either fill up the lives of others or empty them. We've given you these little buckets for you to carry around as a daily reminder of this charge. So let's pick up in the latter part of our theme verse here in Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. Paul writes, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, Clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another of any grievances against someone. Forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. When we hear that word love, we cannot help but to think of some of those love lyrics from the past. Love is a many splendored thing. Love lifts us up where we belong. All you need is love. In the name of love, love makes us act like we are fools. You're welcome. Half those songs will be stuck in your head the rest of the day. We are a people well-versed in love. So when it comes to Paul talking about putting on love, we could look at Paul and we could say, well, we've got this. Except the word love he uses here is not just any kind of love. It's not a romantic love. It's not a general kindness towards others. He uses the Greek word agape, which is described as a God-like love. You've heard it used in the verse, for God so loved the world. So Paul is calling them here to have a profound kind of love. It's a love that says it binds all of these things. It binds compassion and patience and goodness and kindness and forbearance and forgiveness and humility. It pulls them all together in perfect unity. That's a pretty remarkable love. That's a pretty difficult love when you think about it. 
To understand the depths of this kind of love, I want us to turn back to our David and Saul saga that we were in last week. Now, if you weren't here last week, or if you were completely zoned out and fell asleep in worship, let me catch you up what happened in the story. You see, God told Saul that he couldn't be king anymore. And you can imagine that went over real well. And then when God said, actually, you're going to be replaced with this little shepherd boy named David. And over a period of years, Saul goes from being an advocate of David, the giant slayer, who is also his son-in-law, to systematically trying to hunt down this man and murder him. And David eludes Saul again and again, and we came to this very curious passage where Saul finds himself in a very vulnerable place in last week's scripture, and yet David chooses to have mercy and forgiveness on Saul in that moment. And, but the quickly, the story turns into something different because within a few chapters, Saul and David's best friend Jonathan, Saul's son, die in battle. And 2 Samuel chapter 1 tells us that a messenger brings this news to David, and he brings it in a gloating and celebratory fashion. And then this happens in 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 1 through 11. Excuse me. Then David and all the men with him took hold of their clothes and tore them. They mourned and fasted till evening for Saul and his son Jonathan, and for the army of the Lord and for the nation of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. Skip down to verse 22. The scripture said that David wrote this lament and called all of Israel to recite it. Verse 22. From the blood of the slain, from the flesh of the mighty, from the bow of Jonathan did not turn back. The sword of Saul did not return unsatisfied. Saul and Jonathan, in life, they were loved and admired. In the death, they were not parted. They were swifter than eagle. They were stronger than lions. Daughters of Israel, weep for Saul, who clothed you in scarlet and finery, who adorned your garments with ornaments of gold. How the mighty have fallen in battle. Saul's out of the way. No more running, no more avoiding being murdered by this man, no more hiding the fact that God had chosen David over Saul to be this new king. David could ride the wave of Saul's death all the way to the throne. But David chose a different kind of response. David's response would have been abnormal. It would have not been popular. The narrator says that David tore his clothes. This is the ancient's way of showing profound grief and sorrow. The text said that David mourned and wept. The the word they use here is not just a, a simple single tear that he cried. He is wailing and mourning. He is bitterly weeping for this loss. The storytellers want us to know that David didn't just shed a tear, but he was filled with grief and anguish. He was overwhelmed by this moment to the point where he could not even eat. If you think our culture tries to act like men can't cry or show emotion, imagine David in this warrior-like society. Here is their warrior king weeping bitterly like a child. And the scripture says that David then penned a lament, a prayer of distress, of mourning and remembering. It it credits Saul's greatness and the overwhelming loss of his life. David demands that these lyrics be spread throughout all the Hebrew people, that they read it and pray and sing it aloud. It says a lot about David's character, that in the critical moment where he could choose to celebrate the fact that he no longer has a rival in his way of the throne, he chose to 
honor Saul in such a humble way. This shows us just how much why we know David is a man after God's own heart. This last week, the Washington Nationals won their franchise first World Series. Now, let me be clear. I am in no way cheering for the Nationals. As a lifelong New York Mets fan, and this is another team in the division that has won a World Series when my team does their best to get there, but then they don't know how to finish the job, I do not celebrate the fact that the Nationals won the World Series. So why do I bring this up? Well, during the offseason, the Nationals managed not to re-sign their best player, Bryce Harper. Harper instead went uh, to an in-division rival, the Philadelphia Phillies, signing a $330 million contract. Let me restate that. This 26-year-old man signed a $330 million guaranteed contract. But on signing day, he boastfully said to the press that he decided to go with the Phillies instead of the Nationals because the Nationals will never win a World Series. Do you want to know what the number one thing was trending on social media on Thursday night through the weekend? Hashtag World Series, hashtag Bryce Harper. This guy's picture and his quotes and memes and gifs were, were plastered all over the internet. The internet has this wonderful job of reminding us of our mistakes. Then again, I'm sure Bryce Harper was laughing his way to the bank with that $330 million contract. We actually found video footage. Um, let's play this. This is Harper when the Nationals were winning the World Series. The Bryce Harper stories of the world, they're, they're priceless. It's, it's a funny illustration for us to consider of our world's proclivity towards reveling in the harm and failures of others. It happens in small and happens in big measures. The annoying guy at work that gets reprimanded for that email forward or that inappropriate joke. The video of that well-put-together guy in that expensive business suit walking face-first into a glass door because he was too busy texting and walking. The lady who's a jerk to the barista, grabs her $8 cup of coffee only to get a few feet out the door and drops it all over the ground. The team we hate with the burning passion loses in embarrassing fashion and we laugh at it. That's just a setup for y'all to be kind to me next Sunday when LSU beats Alabama. But sometimes our proclivity to revel in the failures and harm of others takes on a more serious tone, such as the firing of a difficult boss, the separation and the divorce of a family that always acted like they were perfect and had everything put together, the death of an enemy, a foreign leader, a terrorist. See, the misfortune and mistakes and harm of others, how often do we say and do things that seem to revel and take joy in their failure and in their harm? As one author put it, however dimly the pulse of humanity beats within every heart, and with its abiding capacity for care and connection, though these people may be momentarily mired by the drives and compulsions of darkness, though often we fail to forget, or at times are inclined to disbelieve, these persons have an essential core compassion embedded within them. This core is the source of God. It's a sorrowful day to know that a child of God never found repentance or renewal, 
something that we often take for granted each and every day. If you recall the words of J.R. Tolkien through the character Gandalf when he said, many who live deserve death, some that die deserve life. Can you give that to them? Do not be too eager to deal out death and judgment. Even the very wise cannot see all ends. There's another semi-famous person who took on this conversation about love for enemies. His name was Jesus of Nazareth, and he said these words. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks of you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even the broken love. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is to that to you? Even the broken do that. And if anyone lends to whom they expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even the broken lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do good to them and lend to them without expecting anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and to the wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Anyone in here ever get dental work done? Small, okay, no raise of hands. I guess I'm the only one. I've been told I have uh, cavity-prone teeth. Um, I have deep crevices in my teeth and a thin enamel, which leads to a lot of cavities. And I'll never forget one particular procedure the dentist was going to remove and fill the cavity. So he stuck that needle in there with that medicine. And if you've got that done, do you ever feel like they're trying to intentionally poke through your brain? It's like, how deep do they have to get in there with that needle? And of course, they take about 15 to 20 minutes to let the medicine set in um, before they start drilling into your tooth. So the allotted time had passed, and the dentist got down and started drilling into my tooth, except this felt a little different. This felt great Caesar's ghost. He had just hit a nerve. I just about kicked out of my chair, and he said, is something wrong? Did I hit a nerve? Did you hit a nerve, buddy? You hit the deepest, darkest nerve that's in my mouth. You see, when we hear these actions of David, when we hear these words of Jesus, if they don't hit a nerve, then maybe we need to check our pulse. Upon first reading of Jesus' proclamation to those who follow him and live in the way of the kingdom, we can be a bit perplexed. In fact, our initial thoughts of Jesus, he might have accidentally replaced the word hate for love. Jesus, didn't you mean hate our enemies, hate those who hate us, hate those who curse us, and get back at those who have wronged us? With this phrase and call alone, this invitation to follow Jesus just went from something that seems so doable to something that seems so impossible. We're cool with Jesus asking us to help other people in need, to stand against self-righteous religious jerks, maybe even giving our possessions away to those who are in need. But, and it's a big old but, we can't expect to be loved our enemies, to do good to those who hate us, to bless those who curse us, to pray for those who mistreat us? Is that hitting on an emotional level? Because I know it does for me. 
because it's so frustrating. Something emotional happens when someone harms us, when someone offends us, when someone curses us. We, we just want something to happen to that person as they did to us. So this should register on an emotional level. It, it, it registers on a physical level. Oftentimes mistreatment and curses and hates and slaps and, and being stolen from us, our, our, our body reacts with pain and shaking and clammy hands of thinking of that person. The sweat on our brow, the, the deep feeling in our throat, uh, their very presence. And so Jesus' words should hit a nerve. And Jesus is speaking to a crowd who understood their enemy. To the first century Jews, public enemy number one was the Romans. There was no other competitor for that classification. It was the Romans that commandeered their sacred land. It was the Romans that subverted them. It was the Romans that had squelched their past failings of rising up and taking back what was theirs. It was the Romans that literally crucified thousands along the public road as an example of what happens when you try to revolt against Rome. It was the Romans that took their money and taxes, that took advantage of their wives and their daughters, that stole their property and forced them to carry their equipment. Right in the bed with Rome was the religious elite and the wealthy who also took their money, who threatened their souls with mandatory religious practices and ties. Enemy, the Greek word used here, ichthus, means hostile, one who hates you, which in turn means one you hate. Who is your enemy? Who is the person you think of right now at work, in school, in the government, overseas, or across the borders, or heaven forbid, in this gathering space right now? Who is that person down to your core that you despise? And the realization that we have enemies and rivals in our life, probably more than we care to admit, is also met with the realization that we can't love them. We, we can't. It's too hard. It's too much. They've done too much for far too long. It can't be done. And this, this nerve I spoke about, this nerve demands that it's filled with all sorts of emotions that consume us, the anger and the fear and the despair and the disgust. It's all mixed with self-loathing and perfectionism and, and blame and judgment. And all these chemicals flowing within our system telling us that, that loving such a person cannot and will not happen. This is an insurmountable mountain of emotion. Jesus did a lot of amazing things in his earthly ministries, and oftentimes we, we, we've read them so often so we breeze over them. Over them. But one of the story in particular that, that always baffles me is Jesus and the disciples are in a boat in the middle of the night. They're crossing um, the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is sleeping in the boat, and it says that out of nowhere, this great storm just occurs around them. And the disciples are screaming in terror. They believe that they are about to die. And Jesus simply awakes to their screams, gets up, calms the storm with just a few words, and ponders the disciples' doubts. With humans, storms are terrorizing, but God's is able to overcome all terrors. This is what we need to begin to understand about the concept of loving our enemies. With us, it seems so impossible, but with God, it is so possible. 
because it is God and faith in God that requires how we learn to love other people. With us, it hits on a physical and emotional level, but with God, it begins to hit us on a spiritual level. Only God can take something that seems so terrible that someone has done against us, that deep emotion within us, and perform a miracle of transformation within our lives. We can't imagine making it through the storm of emotions, but God makes all things possible. Theologian Mirosol Vlov wrote this, because Christ has died for all, we are called to love everyone who offends us. Without distinction, without condition, that hard work of discriminatory love is what those who've been made in the likeness of forgiving like God should do. You see, love for our neighbor is not something we can generate on our own and must come out of the outpouring of our soul being transformed continually by God. Jesus isn't an idiot. He knew that his command to love our enemies hits on an emotional and physical level. Therefore, hate must be overcome on a spiritual level. Jesus, when he said, love your enemies, that's the Greek word agapate. It's, it's a derivative of the word agape, which is used 143 times. This is the same word Jesus said when he said, Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. It's the same word used by Jesus when he so famously said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. It's the kind of love that we see within David as he mourns the death of an enemy. You see, God is calling us to something deeply rooted within us. And it's not just a general kindness towards others, but it's the same kind of love that we give towards God. God is calling us to love others in such a way. There's a Taoist saying, when the obstacle is removed from the eye, the eye sees. When the obstacle is removed from your ear, the ear hears. When the obstacle is removed from the heart, the heart loves. It's the work of God and our obedience to God that overcomes this deeply rooted emotion. It is the work of God that brings us to a place where we can recognize that we, by our own control, by our own thoughts, by our own emotions, cannot become what Christ is calling us to, but through Christ, we can become all things. So even if others hurt us or curse us or do vile things against us, Jesus says, you are able to bless. You are able to pray. You are able to turn the other cheek. You are able to love. In February of 1993, Lamar Bird was shot in the head by a 16-year-old O'Shea Israel. They are having an argument at a party in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Israel was sentenced to 25 years in prison. He ended up serving 17 of those years before being released. Mary Johnson, who was the, the mother of this man killed, was hell-bent on, on seeing this man who murdered her boy spend the rest of his life in prison. She said, my, my son was gone. I was angry and hated this boy. I hated his mother. The murder was like a tsunami, a shock, a disbelief of hatred and anger and blame. It felt like I was caged up like an animal. And after months of, of grieving and immense hatred, she decided to find a, a support group of other mothers to counsel her through this situation. 
After a few years in prison, Israel received this very peculiar call. It was a request from Mary to come and visit him in prison. And for nine months, he refused to grant her permission to come and see him. Instead, he finally decided on one particular day, he saw Mary and she showed him overwhelming grace. In fact, she would continue to meet with him on a regular basis until 2011 when he was released from prison. And then she did the unlikable thing, the unthinkable thing. She asked her landlord to free up the space right next to her so that her son's murderer would live right next to her. She said, unforgiveness is like a cancer. It'll eat you from the inside out. It's not about the other person. Me forgiving him does not diminish what he did. He murdered my son. But the forgiveness is for me. Mary wears a locket. You can see it in the picture. A two-sided locket. On one side is a photo of her son, and the other side is a photo of Israel. This is a radical kind of love. It seems so unconditional. It seems so overwhelmingly impossible. Yet God is calling us to something profound. A love that overcomes the emotional and physical torment we feel towards other people. A love that registers on a spiritual level that calls us to rise above ourselves and become something better so that love can not only transform another person, but love transform us from the inside out. Hate turns into love. Grudges turns into peace. Vengeance turns into mercy. Enemy turns into friend, into a brother or sister in Christ. May we see the reality of Paul's words. Over all these virtues, put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. Every day, you and I carry around a bucket. It's a bucket of our lives. We have the choice to either fill up or empty our lives, to either fill up or empty the lives of others. Jesus' invitation is to rethink what's in our bucket. Instead of a bucket filled with grudges and hatred and judgment and fear, Jesus invites us to fill our lives with love that comes from God's bountiful love and mercy for us. As you carry your bucket this week, Consider how you might fill the lives of your neighbors and co-workers and strangers and people very different from you with the love of Christ.